Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank for how much you love us and care for us. We ask that you help us to see what you would have us to see from these scriptures and, and understand what you would have us to understand. And we just thank you for each person that's here in your son's precious name. Amen. Psalm 105. We're going to read it again and then start where we left off. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Call him upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Talk you of all his wondrous works. Glory you in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O you seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are all in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying unto you, Will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance? When they were but a few in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong, yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land, he broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet were hurt with fetters, and he was laid in irons, until the time of his word came, and the word of the Lord tried him. And the king sent and loosed him, and even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. He made him lord of the house and ruler over all his substance, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his senators wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people and deal subtly with his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark. They rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. The land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there were diverse sorts of flies and lice in their, all their coast. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire for their land. He smote the vines also and their fig trees and broke the trees of their coast. He spoke and the locusts came and the caterpillars and that were without numbers, and did eat up all the herbs of their land, and devour the fruit of the ground. He smote also the firstborn of their land, and the chief of their strength. He brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell upon them. He spread a cloud of covering and a fire to give light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quail, and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. And he brought forth his people with joy, and his chosen with gladness, and gave them the lands of the heathen, and they inherited the labor of the people, that they might observe the statutes and keep his laws. Praise you the Lord. It's a King James. It's a King James version you're looking at. To the end of the chapter, end of the psalm. Yep. This is what I do during during the psalm. The whole psalm just to give us the full context. We left off at verse 14. Remember this psalm that they that they're singing that they would sing praises. It's a history of the Jewish people from Abraham all the way till the time that they are. The Exodus. In Chron well yeah, you're gonna find this all over the place, yeah. You're gonna find it you're gonna find this mostly in Genesis and Exodus, and you're gonna find it repeated all through the scriptures. So this is this is their history. And you think about this, this is a song they sing for worship of God. They sing the they sing the history of the of their people as a as a praise to God. And this is lifting God up. So we've been to, we talked about uh, when they were strangers in the land and that they were very few in number, and very few in number literally when they went to Israel was 70. 70 people made up the entire nation of Israel when they go into Egypt. And when they come out, there's a, somewhere we anticipate around 3.5 million of them after just a, three generations there. So we look at this in verse 14. He suffered no man to do them wrong, yea, he reproved kings for their sake. And this is when Abraham 
was wandering around the promised land. And if you remember, he wandered around. He told the half-truth that, that Sarah wasn't his wife but his sister because she was his sister, so it's kind of a half-truth. But she was his wife, and why he did it was that he was afraid of the king would kill him and, and, and steal Sarah from him. Because she was so beautiful. Because she was beautiful. And apparently she was a very beautiful woman even as she got older because later on he does the same thing with Abimelech. And at that time Sarah's in her 80s or 90s when, she, when he wants to take her into his harem. So you've got a picture of Sarah must have been a very beautiful woman for all these kings even in her older age to want to take them take her into their harem because they're not going after the ugly ugliest people they can find to bring into their harem they she had a kid at 100 years old. he had a kid at 90 so uh, but it says he reproved kings because both pharaoh and abimelech were warned in dreams by god to not touch her and Abimelech, it was kind of interesting because God came to Abimelech in the dream and said, you're a dead man. <laughs> you know, and in the dream, he starts talking to him. and go, why? He goes, because you've got another man's wife. And he goes, well, he told me it was his sister. And he goes, well, give her back. <laughs> uh, so, but God reproved people. And this is kind of an interesting thing because God reproved these kings even though Abraham lied to them. God honors his people in spite of our disobedience. We will get honor, we will be blessed in spite of our disobedience because of his grace. Or if he gave them the same, hmm? same amount of grief that he gave them. Gave who? Abraham. Abraham, I'm sure, had some punishment as well. It doesn't tell us, but I'm, I am sure that Abraham... Pay, paid a price for his lies at the same time. I mean, you can't understand why he would lie. So, so, you know. Because he was learning to trust God. These are, these are great examples of him failing, failing the test. Now, with Pharaoh, it's kind of interesting. You know, we can understand that when by the time he got to Abimelech, he'd already been through this. So it's hard to picture him failing on that one when it was God that delivered him from, a, from, a, from Pharaoh. And then he had Abimelech. But then we find Isaac doing the same thing in his lifetime, saying that Rebekah wasn't his, wasn't his uh, wife, it was his daughter. And in his case, Abimelech watched them playing around and said, uh, uh, that's not your sister that you're, that you're hugging and kissing and, and having, being so affectionate to. And... He goes, well, I was afraid that you'd take her. And you know, he goes, well, we could have sinned in this process. So Isaac didn't learn from the lessons of his father, and his father didn't seem to learn from his lessons. Um, but you know, we want to be careful that we're not too critical of them because we usually learn the first, second, third, fourth time in our own lessons. <laughs> uh, so we need to be very careful about how we look at them. But it is strange when we look at this and say, especially when it was so miraculous that God saved and delivered Sarah from those uh, places. But he says, God reproved these kings for Abraham's sake. And what did he say? Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. This is a theme that runs through the scriptures. Do not touch God's anointed. David, when he cut the hem off of Saul's garment in the cave, when Saul had set it aside while he relieved himself, came out and said, I can't touch his anointed. He, was, he felt guilt over just cutting the garment off. And his, and his men were telling him, you know, look, God's delivered him to you. And he goes, no, this is God's anointed. And you think about when David said that, he had already been anointed king by Saul, Samuel. He knew he was the next king of Israel. From human standards, he had every right to go out and kill Saul and take, take the throne. There's other people that are going to do that in the Chronicles and the kings that, that are anointed in Israel and take over the throne. But David said, no, I'm going to wait. This is God's anointed man, and until he takes him out, I'm not going to go against him. We see that in Jude when, when Michael is battling with Lucifer over the body of Moses. 
it said, he said, the Lord rebuke you. He was on the Lord's assignment, but he would not go against the one who had been his authority. Because God keeps you in authority till he takes you out of authority. And this is something we've got to remember. Even when authority is bad, God has placed it in position, and we need to honor, not necessarily obey. I mean, the angels are not going to obey Lucifer, okay, because he is no longer their, their one. But they're also going to be very careful on what they do because he was an authority. David would not go after um, Saul because Saul had been anointed before he was, and he said, I'm going to not touch God's anointed. Miriam and Aaron went against Moses, God's anointed authority, and Miriam was struck with leprosy. And if it hadn't been for the intercession of Moses, she would not have been able to be amongst the people and wouldn't have been healed. God deals with authority in a way that's very different from the way we as humans deal with authority. And especially for us like in America where we feel like we can say whatever we want against authority because we, because we have the right to vote and, and reelect. We need to be careful. God taught me this a long time ago. We need to be careful what we say about our authorities because God put them there. We vote. We can vote them out of office. We can run, you know, we can run and campaign against them when it's time. But we still must pray for them and give them the honor of their position, whether, they, whether we think they deserve it or not. But this is the, point, the way God looks at authority. He looks at it very, very serious. Why would Lucifer want Moses' body? Why wouldn't Lucifer want Moses' body? Doesn't tell us why. But I would say that it would probably be to make an idol out of it. What have the Catholics done with the millions of bones that are supposedly part of the apostles that they bury, that they put in, uh, into all the uh, churches all over Europe. They worship, they worship them. They're idolizing those bones. There's bits and pieces of, of the cross in, in many churches all through, all through Europe that are in the Catholic churches because they idolize the cross in that action. What did the Jews do to the brazen serpent that was used to be looked at when they bitten by the snakes and they raised that serpent up, brazen serpent, if they looked up at it, they would be healed. By Josiah's time, it had become an idol and people worshipped it. What would they have done with Moses' body, the number one prophet of all prophets in the Jewish religion? Probably turned it into an idol. All the bones and bits and pieces of them would be all over the place being worshipped. Why do I believe Jesus didn't write anything? Because if you had a book that Jesus wrote, imagine what that would be. There would be pilgrimages to that book, bowing down to, to worship the book rather than the author of the book. Just speculating, but that is what, you know, the, I, the way man operates, it would be very much why. And I believe that's why God took him off all by himself and, and took, him, took him away. But so that there wouldn't be those, that hill or wherever where they're going to go to pilgrimages to go worship at the, at the shrine of Moses. Yes, that's why, this is why I would say that it probably, and I'm only speculating, but it makes sense to me that that's why the body of Moses was not allowed to be located. God took care of it himself to make sure that there would not be this idolatry going on with his people. Verse 16, Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. This tells us that that famine was placed there by God. And we know that it was. Okay, We want to keep these things in mind. This is a good history lesson as we go through because it brings things that we don't normally think about in there. How many times have you read the story of a famine in the land of it that covered the land that drove the Israel into Egypt and we don't think of it being God's famine. We just kind of think of it as, well, that's just what happened. God sent it. And he did it for a reason. He wanted his people out of, Israel, out of the promised land set aside so that they would grow, allowed the promised land to get evil enough to be judged, and then bring his people out to be the judgment tool for, the, for that judgment. But it was God who did it. And I keep harping on this. This seems to be the topic of the, you know, as I go along. Judgment, 
bad things that, that seem to be bad to us, God is allowing and sends. He's in control. It's him, in con it's him that's allowing it. It's him that sends them to be the test. And here he says, I'm sending this famine, but I've sent Joseph ahead of you. And how did he get sent there? Because he gave Joseph a dream, and Joseph very, very foolishly told his brothers about how they were going to bow down to their younger, youngest brother, or second youngest brother. You know, and, of course, older brothers love that idea that no, the younger brother is going to be raised up above them. It really sat well with them. And so they decided to sell him. And it said God sent him ahead of them. And that's exactly what Joseph is going to tell his brothers when, when, they, when they get there. He goes, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. So a lot of our tests that we have that's bad is for he knows and he wants to see how we handle it. He wants to know, do, are we going to trust him? Are we going to grow from this? Are we going, are we going to, to stay steadfast? Are we going to rejoice in everything that goes on? Or are we going to grumble and gripe about it and, and feel like God's out of control? This is why we are, we're looking at this. The more we're aware that all these tests and what we think are bad is God doing something in our life. Now, we may not understand it. And this is why I've said more than once I've told God, God, I don't understand this, but you've said it's going to be for good and you are the one in control. You know what's going on. Look at all the stories in the scripture. Job did not know what was going on. He did not understand that it was a trial. Moses, when he was driven out of Egypt, did not know that this was all for him to be able to come back as their leader. He had been trained as a leader. He was being trained to take over Egypt. But what he was really being trained for was to take over the ruling of Israel 300, uh, three and a half million people wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And he'd been trained on how to manage a large group of people. I think about the, you know, it's not just a day or two, 40 years. Yeah. That's, that's one thing I keep thinking about. It's not a week, it's 40 years. Yep. You get Joseph sold into slavery. For 12 years. Well, 13 years. Or 13 years. You know, well, he sold it, sold for 13 years. He was into he was 17, and he was promoted at 30. Now, when he was sold, as far as he knew, he was never going to see his family again. He had a dream that they were going to bow down to him, and yet he, now he's going in as a slave. How would his brothers ever bow down to a slave? Now, I have a feeling that when he was 30 and he got promoted, he had some inkling of an idea that Here's, here's the fulfillment of this. I'm now the ruler of Egypt, second ruler of Egypt. Maybe I'm going to see my brothers, and they're going to bow down. And then he sees them. Yeah. Yeah. We look at Abraham called out of Ur of Chaldees to go wander around the promised land and be promised. You're going to, your, your descendants are going to be numbering as the stars in the sand. And even with that promise, he, he grumbled a few times. You know, hey, God... Uh, You've given me a promise, and all I've got is Eliezer, my servant. I still think that time when, when, um, when God told Sarah that she's going to be pregnant in a year, and she was laughing because she <laughs> said, like, at my age, no way, you know. And so to experience that, like, you don't dare tell anybody to think you're a fool. Well, she, she was absolutely convinced because what did she say? I'm past the time of women. I'm past menopause. I, I'm, there's no way I'm having a kid. I don't even, my body doesn't even perform anymore, she says. You know, it was very clear that she would have laughed. It was a joke to her that somehow she was going to end up with a child. She just thought it was totally hilarious. totally hilarious. You know, yeah, right, you're right, I'm going to have a baby. You know, it's, it's impossible. When you think about it, it is laughable. It would be a laughable thing if, you didn't, if it wasn't God speaking and you didn't have the faith in God. And yet, don't we do the same thing often with God when he leads us to do something? We kind of laugh about it. Go, no, God, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do that. But we look at all these people where, that had these trials come into their life. All through scriptures. And how God intervenes and is faithful in spite of failures. Jonah's a great example. Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to them. 
Oh no, God, I'm not going to Nineveh, and he runs exactly the opposite direction. He's supposed to go northeast, and he goes west. <laughs> He's headed towards Spain. I'm, I'm getting out of here. But it's just amazing now, when I'm really, really learning to read it, that the things that happened to them were doing the same thing. And I never thought back then they would ever do that kind of stuff. And then God brings Jonah back. And even when Jonah gets to Nineveh, you look at his message. You're going to be destroyed in, four, in 40 days. What a wonderful message. And I'm sure it wasn't said with, with anything but glee. You enemies of Israel are going to be destroyed in 40 days, and I'm looking forward to it type message. And then God delivers them. And then we have the whole interaction between Jonah and God saying, well, God, I knew you were going to, you were merciful and you were going to deliver them if they repented. And I really, basically saying, I really wanted them destroyed. That's why I didn't come. Because I knew you'd be, you'd be merciful. And then God teaches him a lesson. How many times does God drag us into service for him? Saying, you're going to be drug in. We're going to drag you in and you're going to serve me in spite of whatever you want to do. Believe me, I've seen it over and over, especially the first time you have to serve God. It's sometimes very interesting. Oh, no, God, I'm not qualified. I'm, I'm not able to do this. After you've done it a while, it gets a little easier, but then God takes you to the next step, you know, the next step, and the next step as he, as he brings you into service. But these long lessons on God being merciful to people and, and teaching them what it is that he wants them to do, we have great examples and yet we fail with, even with the same examples that we see. And it says, whose feet were hurt with fetters and he was laid in irons. We're talking about Joseph as he's going down into Egypt, bound in fetters, chains, and made to walk behind whatever they were, the caravan was. They were, if I recall right, they said they were on donkeys. The Midianites were on donkeys or, or camels. And yet, he would not have ridden a camel as a slave. He'd have been drug along behind them all. And that's the way they worked. You would drug along behind the, the wagons, behind the horses, behind whatever was walking. When you see these movies where the, where the long chained up people being drugged behind a cart, that's what really happened. A cart or a horse or a wagon, they did, you did not get the privilege of riding as a as a slave. The produce and the stuff that they were going to market were in the, were in the carts and the, the slaves got to walk. And if they fell down, they'd be drug because they didn't stop. So this is, a, this is, and then it says, until the word of the Lord came and the Lord God tried him. Think about this. Joseph is a slave. He makes the best of it. He serves really well for Potiphar impresses Potiphar, becomes head of Potiphar's slaves, basically, and, and basically head of Potiphar's house. He's running Potiphar's house. And as Genesis tells us, he ran it so much that Potiphar had no clue what he owned and what he had. And that's how much he trusted Joseph. Joseph ran Potiphar's house. Potiphar did his work. He came back home. He had food on the table. His slaves were all producing and he didn't care because Joseph. Joseph was running it and he was prosperous and he was getting richer and everything was running smooth. And then Potiphar's wife got involved, said, this guy looks really good and decided to make a play for Joseph. She really was going after Joseph, if you remember the story. You know, she was purposely trying to get him to sleep with her every time she could... You know, and of course, Joseph did what every red-blooded uh, uh, young man did, and he ran away. You know, <laughs> that is not the normal. His reaction was not normal. And this is something that is really good, but this is where he says God tried him while he was down there. He honored God in spite of what it was. Because he could have very easily said, well, I'm far from home. God has not been good to me. He's, he's sent me into this slavery, and God doesn't care. I'm never going to see my family. Who's going to care what I do from this point? And yet he honored God in the middle of that trial 
when it made no sense really to honor God at that point in time. And then, of course, he went to prison <laughs> under false charges. Because of, her. Because, of, because of a woman trying to you know, yell rape. He rose up in the ranks of the prison. Not quite as free as he was at Potiphar's house, but he rose up and been responsible. And we know that he was there for at least two years in prison. We don't know how long exactly in prison. We know the entire time is 13 years that he's a slave in, or, and or prisoner. And then he gets promoted, as we're going to see there. But can you imagine how hard that would have been? God, you, you sold me into slavery. I thought everything, you know, my brothers are supposed to bow down to you, and he sold me into slavery. And now, here I am, I was doing good, I honored you, I did what was right, and now I'm in prison. And that's exactly, see what I get for doing the right thing. Yeah. See what I get for doing the right thing, God? You sent me to prison. Even in there, he could have said, I've had enough, God. I'm not going to follow you. And yet he didn't. And this is the amazing thing we see with, with Joseph. He is a great example of somebody who follows God. Daniel's the same type of example. He follows God even though he's gone into slavery for all practical purposes. He was a prince of Israel that went into slavery to be a slave and got promoted and then got to help rule over three different kingdoms over time. Amazing the, the way that he honored God. So we look at these and it says in verse 20, and the king sent and loosed him and even the ruler of the people and let him go free and made him lord over his house and ruler over all his substance. And this is his final promotion at age 30. He's given number two position of all of the land of Egypt. Why? Because God gave him the interpretation to a dream that Pharaoh had. <laughs> yeah. he, and, and one other thing that we may or may not remember Besides the interpretation of the dream, Joseph was very bold because he said, now I'm going to give you advice, Pharaoh. <laughs> he didn't quite say it that way, but basically that's what he said. Now go find somebody who is wise and let him save the food during the good years so that you'll get through the poor years. Can you imagine? You've been, you're a slave, you've been a prisoner, you've been elevated, you've been taken out of the prison, and you're talking to, the, to the, the head of the country, and you say, oh, by the way, I've interpreted this for you. Now do this. <laughs> you know, you're not even an advisor. <laughs> All you've been called to do is interpret the dream, and he gives him advice on how to handle it. But Pharaoh is impressed and promotes him. Promotes him to number two position of all the land. And then as the story goes, he goes, verse 22, and to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his senators wisdom. Joseph was made the number two in all of Israel, of all of Egypt. What he said went. If he didn't like any of the princes or the dukes or whoever, he could put them in prison. He could bind them. He could. He was number two. What he said went. That's what this verse is all about. Okay, he's number two. There's nobody more more important than him. He could he could have the princes arrested. He could put them under home home uh, arrest. He could put them in prison. He so could like control. Control, yeah. literally control, and teach senators and all the other people wisdom because he was considered very wise that's why he was promoted but he was and Pharaoh said what you say the people will do and if you recall what did they end up doing when it was time to start selling the stuff back to people and it's kind of interesting he took a 20% tax on everything that was produced and then sold it back to the people to the point where by the end of the seven years, Pharaoh owned everything. He owned all the land, he owned all the houses, he owned all the people because they sold themselves into slavery, except for the priests of the gods because they had a protected position and they had their own stuff. 
Joseph basically makes Pharaoh extremely rich. He owns, he owns everything in Egypt by the end of the seven, seven years of famine. So, jo so Pharaoh should really be thankful. Pharaoh loved Joseph. Joseph was very, he worked on it. You know, we took all the stuff from the people in taxes, and now we're going to sell it back to them. And then in verse 23, in Israel, which is the nation, also came to Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. So Israel, 70 people in all are going to come down to Egypt. And we remember the story. Jacob sends the 10 brothers down to buy food because there's food in Egypt. They come in. They have to stand before Joseph. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And that's kind of true because he was 17 when they sold him, and now he's 30, so he's matured a lot. He's no longer dressed as a Hebrew. He's dressed as an as a Egyptian, how, you know, with all the facial hairs shaved the way it would be for an Egyptian, and he looks like an Egyptian. He speaks Egyptian to them, doesn't let them know that he speaks their language. Runs them through a long test to see if they've really changed, and then invites his dad to come live in Egypt. And he comes down and he's honored by Pharaoh. Jacob is elevated in front of Pharaoh. And Joseph's brothers are taken into handling the flocks of Pharaoh. Why did they get promoted? Only one reason, because Joseph was so good at what he did, he hoped, hoped that his brothers were even half as good as Joseph, so he put them in, front of the, in charge of his herds. Huh? What? In this case, it was more the fact Joseph, Joseph was a really good leader, and I think he was really hoping that his brothers had even just an inkling of the ability of Joseph. And he said that they were, that they were herdsmen, so he'd go, okay, that's, that's their, their, their living, so we'll give them this, and maybe, and I'm sure his thought was, Joseph is this really good leader and good administrator. Maybe his brothers have just a bit. Yeah. Well, Pharaoh, this was Pharaoh. Well, it was Pharaoh that promoted his brothers. Pharaoh himself promoted them. Well, I don't think Joseph promoted I said it. They just said that they were herdsmen. And Pharaoh said, I'm going to put you in charge of my people, um, in charge of my herds. Because, number one, they were herdsmen. He's honoring Joseph, if nothing else. And in the back of his mind, he's thinking, Maybe these guys will be as good as Joseph, and now my flocks are going to multiply greatly. And he, matter of fact, he owned all the flocks. So, I mean, it, he owned all, of the, all the animals of the entire Egyptian people. So, and then it says the people increased greatly and became stronger than their enemies. And this is where we talk about. They go from 70 people to somewhere around 3.5 million. And if you want to remember how we come to 3.5 million, because there's 660,000 men when they leave Egypt. Most of them are probably married, which brings you to about two and a half million people. And then there will be one to two children per person, which brings you up to somewhere between two and a half to three and a half million people leaving Egypt. Okay, so they move up quickly in their, in their uh, population. Because if you read in Chronicles, there's only four generations totally listed from the time they go into Egypt to the time they leave. And so this is something you want to look at. And this is one of the reasons that I highly don't believe that they spent 430 years in Egypt proper. And it also says when, Moses, when, when Paul quotes it in the New Testament, he says 430 years from the time of promise, the promise was Isaac. So it's 430 years from Isaac, not 430 years in Egypt proper. Was the land of Goshen, was that right in the capital of Egypt? Or? That's the Nile Delta area. That's a pretty big area. It's a big area, and it was very fertile. It was the best part, of the best land that Egypt had. Is the land of Goshen, that whole northern part of, of that area. That was Goshen. It was the very best land, and 
Pharaoh agreed. Okay, Joseph, you want to give your family my best land? Go for it. <laughs> because Joseph had protected him and his people. They're given the best of the best, and it's farmland, and they're bringing cattle <laughs> and sheep, and they're herdsmen, and they get the best farming land to raise cattle with. All right, so they, they become strong, and then they can become stronger than their enemies of Egypt. And this is, takes you into the beginning of Exodus, where there arose, a, there arose a pharaoh that knew not Joseph. And he was worried about the people that were becoming stronger than his people, more than his people, stronger than his people. He's afraid of the, the Israelites because they're a large group of people in his country, and, you know, they're strong. They're the ones doing the work. And they have served. They have slaved. They are strong physically. They're strong numerically. And he fears them because they're a group. Then uh, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And we talked about this being where Ham settled was all of the Afri African nations was where Ham settled primarily. A little bit in the Middle East, there's some of his, some of his people and increased and became stronger. Verse 25, he turned their heart to hate his people and deal subtly with his servants. And this is where the Pharaoh came and turned them into slaves. And then he sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. Again, God sends Moses. And it skips the whole thing where Moses is trained to be Pharaoh and sent away through, the, through having committed the murder of the Egyptian. Gets sent away for 40 years. Moses' life, he lives to be 120 years and is broken up in three sets of 40. 40 years learning to be ruler of Egypt. 40 years on the backside of the desert being humbled because he was proud and arrogant. And then 40 years leading the people of Israel into the promised land. One thing about it, there's many people that say, well, how, how long did it take the, for the plagues to, to run their course? And there's a lot of people who want to make it years. 40, 40, and 40 is 120 years. He comes off the backside of the desert at age 80. It is not a long time that he is, the plagues are going to last. It has to be a very short time. These plagues come in rapid succession, no more than a year. And that would be long time, I think. Because they're going to spend a year at Sinai and 40 years wandering in the desert. We have a very short period of time for the plagues to happen. Just to give you a point, because there's a lot of people that debate how long were the, did it take these plagues to go through. And if it was too long, it wouldn't have been the miraculous thing that it turned out to be. Because people really understood this was God's hand against us. And I believe they went in rapid succession that they were less than, less than a couple months probably in time. We do know that it's at least two or three, four months because of the harvests that got wiped out. But that's still pretty quick succession to have that much trouble happening. Verse 27, And they showed him signs among them, and the wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. He brought forth frogs in abundance in the and in the chambers of their kings. So we're going through right here. If you recognize, these are the plagues on Egypt darkness and we're not and if you remember it's talking about dark no light for three days any light it's enough to go crazy to on it, that's about as long as you can handle in total darkness without going insane that's how long God put him into it but he kept the land of Goshen with light through the water they, he blood and slew their fish. All the fish in the Nile died. He sent frogs in abundance. So many frogs that they're, they're even in the, in the bedchamber of the, of the Pharaoh. They were everywhere. Can you imagine frogs everywhere? Okay. And if you read Exodus, they were in the ovens. They were in the feeding troughs. They were everywhere. You had to step on frogs to walk. He spoke and there were diverse sorts of flies. And this is literally swarms of varying types of flies and lice in all their coasts. Now you want to talk about lots of lice. This is 
This is a terrible infection. He sent hail for rain and fl fire, flaming fire on their land. He smote their vines and their fig trees and broke their trees. He sent locusts, and locusts came in caterpillars without number, and did eat up all the herbs of their land and devour the fruit of their ground. God destroyed the entire economy of Egypt. Okay? They were refusing to let his people go. He destroyed their economy. He took all the agriculture and destroyed it. He killed the fish in, in, in the Nile, which was a very huge area. Everything that they could eat and trade of growing things was gone. And he's going to take away their, their wealth. We'll get to that one too, but he's also going to take away their wealth. They're going to lose everything because they worked against God. The lost world will lose everything for rejecting God. At some point in their, their life, at the very end, if nothing else, when they stand before God at the white throne judgment, they're going to lose everything they thought they had because they reject God. And usually, they've lost even here on this world. We look, at, and we've said this before, we look at some of these people and say, look at all the stuff they've got. They've got everything I possibly could want. They've got wealth, they've got fame, they've got this, that, and the other thing, and they're totally unhappy because they don't have God. We look at them and say, well, look how wonderful it is, and they're looking at their life saying, I am so miserable, nothing, nothing fills this hole. We've got to be careful when we look at things and say, wow, they're so wonderful, everything is good, because it's not good. It's not good without the, the gift of God and him in your heart. And here God says he's destroyed everything. And then he says he smote the firstborn of the land, and this is Passover. This is where Passover starts. The firstborn of all living things was killed, including cattle and sheep and any animals. The firstborn were all killed unless they were in a home protected by the blood of the Passover lamb. And if you think about this, and we've mentioned this, when they struck the sides of the door, the top and the bottom, it was the form of a cross being, being put on their door. The cross protected them from the death of their firstborn. And they were driven out of Egypt after that. Verse 37 says, And he brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among the tribes. Every single person who left Egypt was healthy. They needed to be healthy. They're going to be walking all the time. But God did a supernatural miracle. Three and a half million people, and none of them are feeble. None of them are sick. And it says... They went with all the gold and silver and jewels. And, we, and this was where God said, you go to your neighbors and you ask them for gold and silver and, and, and jewels. And they gave it to them. Why? The people wanted, the Egyptians wanted them gone. Get out of here. Take whatever you want. Get out of here. Get out of here as fast as you possibly can. Because we have no food. We have no fish. We have nothing. And we have been sick. We've had diseases. All these things coming upon us. Get out of here. Get your God out of here. Your God has beat up our gods, and we are tired of you. They lost. They lost. And we've talked about this. The ten plagues was a battle of the gods. God was showing them that no god in Egypt was strong enough to protect them. He defeated Ra, the sun god. He defeated the gods of the Nile. He defeated the gods of the agriculture. He defeated the gods of every one of their gods was defeated and Egypt was like, get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. We don't want this battle anymore. We, they're looking at the fact that they're going to starve for the next year until the crops can be devour, uh, come again. They're looking at the fact that they can't even go to the Nile and get fish because the fish are all dead. And, that takes time. and it takes time to, for fish to grow back up to something you can eat. This is a big deal to them. And they're saying, get out of here. You want jewels? Here, have everything we have. And they took everything. And of course, they used most of it to build the tabernacle. Verse 38, Egypt, Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of the Lord was upon them. They probably were celebrating this about time. Because remember, even before the last plagues, the people were telling Pharaoh, this Moses is a nuisance to us. Get rid of these people. 
We want them gone. Even before things were finished, they're going, get them out of here. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened because God wanted to make a huge uh, display of this. And they're going to chase after them and have them and have their army destroyed. And after their army was destroyed, there was a great dynasty change in Egypt because there was no army to defend against the invasion from the north that took over the new dynasty. So we see all of this happening. Verse 39, he spread a cloud for cover, fire to give light in the night. Now we talk about the, the, cloud, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, but this says that it was actually a cloud that covered the people as well, that his cloud gave them shade and that he was, they were protected by the heat from the heat of the day and that the pillar of fire gave them light. This is something we don't see. And this is why we take the whole of scripture to go back into, get more detail. And this one gives us slightly different details from this. You know, the idea of Joseph's feet being fettered and, and the idea that they were sore, sores and hurt because of the fetters is something, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that that's how they would have made him travel. But we don't think about it because Genesis doesn't say that he was fettered and chained. This tells us that he was fettered and chained. That's what I said. This is a history. They're singing the history of Israel up until Exodus. This is what they would have been, you know, and to me it's just kind of amazing. They're, they're, to worship God, they're singing the history of, of God's great work to build his people and deliver them. Verse 40, the people asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with bread of heaven, manna. Now, he doesn't go into the fact that they murmured and complained for this stuff. He just said they asked. David here is being kind of generous. Because <laughs> he could have go. they murmured and complained and God gave them. You know, but he goes, no, they asked. And they really didn't ask. They just complained. You're, Moses, you brought us out of here to starve us to death. You brought us out here to make us die of thirst. And God gave them the quail. He gave them manna. And can you imagine having the manna? It must have been the perfect perfect food because it says there after 40 years their feet did not swell and their garments did not wear out but he said I gave you the manna and quail and then he says he opened the rock and waters gushed out and they ran in the dry places like a river I never really thought about that until I read this verse recently and the rock represents Jesus obviously and the waters of life coming out of it but Moses, on the first time he went to the rock to get water, struck the rock. And it says, a river of water flowed from this rock. A river of water, and that would have been what it would have taken to water three and a half million people. You needed a very good-sized river flowing from this rock. It wasn't just a dribble of water. It wasn't just a stream of water. You got three and a half million people to water with fresh, yeah, with fresh water, you have a torrent of water coming from this rock. And this, not, this one brings it out. I mean, I've always thought about how much water it would take to, to do three and a half million, but here he says it was a river of water that God provided. There'd be a large amount of water coming out of this rock. And as was mentioned, when he did it the second time, he was supposed to just speak to the rock and water was supposed to come out. And he got so angry with the people that he struck the rock. And why, did it, why was that a big deal? Because the rock is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was only struck once. And at that point, all you had to do, have to do is ask for living water, and we get living water for just asking. Moses destroyed the picture that God was putting up, and then God judged him for, for that and said, you're not going into the promised land. And as I've said, my personal belief is he didn't go into the promised land because he never repented of his sin. And every time from Deuteronomy on, he says, it's your fault I'm not going into the promised land. He always blamed the people for his, his anger. His temper overcame him. He did not repent of his temper tantrum. Ended up not going into the promised land. All right, we have just a couple of verses. We're going to finish this, this uh, psalm up. Verse uh, 42, For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant... And he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness. Why did he bring them out of Egypt? For Abraham's sake. Why does he bless us? Because of Jesus and Abraham. Actually, it all still goes back to Abraham. He told him, I'm going to bless all nations through you. 
So it all goes back to Abraham. Why was Abraham chosen? By God's grace and his mercy. Not that he was the super special person. Now he seemed to be one that wanted to worship God. But there was nothing great, super great about Abraham. And we see that in all of his failings and all of his walk. But God says, I remembered my promise to Abraham. And he delivered the people. And, and it says that he brought them forth with joy and is chosen with gladness. Now, they didn't seem to have the same happiness and gladness that God is seeing them with. But they were happy when they first came out. They've been delivered from slavery. Less than 24 hours later, they're grumbling and griping because they see Pharaoh coming, marching down on them. You brought us out here to kill us. There wasn't enough graves in Egypt. You brought us out here so we could die. God takes them through the Red Sea. And then Moses gives them the message from God, the Egyptians that you see today will be no more as they get flood, covered in the flood of water in the, in the, Mediter- in the Mediterranean, yeah, the Red Sea. <laughs> and he buries the horse and rider in the Red Sea. They're happy again. They sing songs and praises. Just a couple days later, they're grumbling and griping again. You were thirsty. You brought us out here so that we can die. There wasn't enough graves in Egypt. You brought us out here to die. I, I feel sorry for Moses because it was 40 years of people griping every time he turned around that there, you brought us out here so that we could die. You brought us out here so we could die. Sad thing is, for the last 40 years of it, they were out there to die. <laughs> yeah. You didn't go into the promised land. Your generation is going to wander until you're all dead. So they were brought out. They stopped saying that after that. Before that, you hear it all the time. You brought us out here so that we can die. After that, it doesn't record that they were saying that you brought us out here to die because they were wandering out there until all the people over 20 died. Okay. Uh, did it shut them up any when he opened the land? He told them all stand over here. And everybody, I can't think of his name. Cora. Cora. No, there was all kinds of murmuring and complaining up there. Why would that miracle be any different from ten plagues destroying Egypt, the, the, the Red Sea swallowing up the entire Egyptian army, the waters of Mira being purified and cleansed, the rock gushing forth water? You know, no, they never stopped. I think the ten plagues everybody. They had a very short memory, but again, I caution us all the time that we need to be very careful about judging them because we have very short memories for when God blesses us. We keep, we keep forgetting the blessings of God. And maybe they weren't quite as bold and miraculous, but when God provides something for us, it is a miracle when it happens, and we usually recognize it as God's blessing and his miracle. And then a few days later, weeks later, months later, we forget it. And we're going, you know, we have the old human nature. What have you done for me lately? And we apply it to God just as much as we do to other people. Well, God, you did this in the past, but what have you done for me lately? And God's saying, well, I give you air to breathe. I keep the food on your table. I keep your, keep your roof over your, over your head. I let you keep your job. Uh, you know. But we're looking for, we're always looking for the great miracle that God produces for us. And they're all great. And they're all great. They're all, they're all miracles. When we wake up with new blessings every morning, we still can breathe air. We still have light in the sky we still have things to do for God, and we belittle the everyday things. And this is why I keep bringing out, if we look at all these people in the stories in the scripture, we've got to remember that most of their days were just normal, get up in the morning, sir, do, do everyday service for God, go to bed, get up the next day, do everyday service for God, and then God steps in with a great and mighty miracle and miraculous action. I want us to really understand that. Abraham's life, we have just these handful of events. Uh, what is it? 60-year period of his life. And we get three or four events out of his life, for, you know, maybe, maybe seven at the most. God went a long time sometimes without doing anything in his life. A lot of Abraham's life was just get up, handle today. Get up the next day, handle today. Oh, uh, Mo, uh, uh, Abraham, I'd like you to go offer your son as a sacrifice. Abraham, your, your nephew's been carried off by these seven kings. Uh, go rescue him. And it wasn't even told to him to rescue. He just decided to go rescue him, and God delivered seven kings to 
Abraham's men. And he says he brought them out. And then verse 44, and he gave them the lands of the heathen. They inherited the labor of the people. He gave them the promised land. And he said over and over, I'm giving you this land. You're getting fields that you haven't planted. You're getting orchards that you haven't planted. You're getting homes that you haven't planted. And you're getting cities that you didn't establish. God gave them a ready-made nation. All they had to do was go in with faith and, and drive the people out. Then God said, I'm the one that's going to drive them out. Mm-hmm. You're not going to lose your battles. You're going to go in and you're going to win if you have the faith to go forward. And we're going to, we're going to see later on in Joshua, when we, on the Wednesday night gets to Joshua, that they didn't do a very good job of driving the people out. But God said, you're going to. And the last verse, that you might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Their whole reason they gave him was that they would be obedient to him. And he ends it, praise you the Lord. Praise you the Lord. We need to be praising God. And I like the way this one ends. Here's all the wonderful things he's done for you in the past. Praise the Lord. But what else does he tell him? God has been faithful in the past. Praise God, he's going to be faithful for you in the future. We have to keep these things in memory. God is blessed in the past, therefore I know I can trust him in the future. And this is very important for us to understand this. He has been faithful, he will be faithful, because he has been faithful. He does not change. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has been faithful in delivering them in the past. He will be faithful and deliver in the present. And he will be faithful and deliver in the future. And this is why we get into the scriptures so that we see that God is faithful. We go in and remember our story. We need to mark the times that God has helped us and keep track of those times that he has helped us so that when we are depressed and we don't understand what's going on, we go, okay, God, you helped me here, you helped me here, you helped me here. Therefore, you're going to help me in this event and any other event that's coming. Very important for us to get to that point where we say, because you have been faithful in my life, you will be faithful in what's going on today or what will be happening in the future. We need to encourage one another. When somebody is down, we need to go, well, yeah, remember when God did this for you or for the church or for for whatever. This is why we share our testimony of what God has done, because it helps to build other people's faith. And I've said this before. It's one thing to look at the scriptures and say, yeah, God did it then. Because the scriptures are anywhere from two to 6,000 years old, depending on how far back we want to go. And yes, we say, yes, the scriptures are true. But when you know somebody that God has done somebody, something for, build your faith. Even more importantly, when you remember what God has done in your own life. And you can remember that. We need to work on keeping remembrance of what God has done. It would be really advantageous to write them down someplace so that when you're feeling really bad about what you're going through and somehow God has left, let you down, go back and read or, or review these things that God has done in your life. Oh, yeah, that's right. God did this then, and God did this then, and God did this then. And go, okay, God, yes, you've been faithful. You have been faithful in my life, not somebody else's life, not Moses's and Joseph's, and, and we should take comfort in that, and it should be enough, but we know that it's not. We as humans are very short-sighted, very short-memoried. We need to remember what God has done for us so that we can look into the future and say, you will do. And who knows what he's trying to teach us? Only he knows what he's going to try to teach us. And how much do we have to go through? Depends on how we respond or how far along we are. Because again, I love to go back to Job. Job went through a very heavy test, heavier than anybody I've ever heard of going through. He had everything taken away from him. Literally everything. Except for his wife and his life. And she was real wonderful. She said, curse God and die. 
But, you know, I don't know that she was being cruel when she said, curse God and die. She may have just been so hurt that her husband was, was suffering so bad that she was saying it would be better for you just to get it over with, Job. Just, just curse God and die. Get, get it over with. I'm loving you so much that I can't see you in this much pain. Now, it could be that she didn't have enough faith, but it could also be that she loved him so much that she's saying, let's just get it over with. You know, you had all these things, just curse God and die because it's just, I don't want to see you in this much pain. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We thank you for your reviewing of history to us, that you know what it is and that you want us to remember. You want us to remember what you have done for us and how that you care for us. And it is so important for us to do this. Help us to always have these landmarks where we know the things that you have done and we remember. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.